Welcome to episode 395 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with regular contributor, American journalist, acclaimed Mr. Seamus McGraw. We talk about crisis, paying the bills, the state of political affairs in the U.S., demanding a public accounting, truth and reconciliation, seditious assault, concept of decency, exceptionalism, among other intriguing ideas and insights. Yes, a grand conversation once again with Seamus McGraw. We feature an EWSA titled Age Old, share excerpts from Buddhist monk Thichnat Han's book called How to Fight, and we have a poem titled True. And of course, all of this is imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us during this post-Trump era. Let's get to it. Episode 395 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
Dancing on a rock in the rain, as the highway roars far away, the sound into my enclave outside this window pane. I think of human progress and wonder what that means. The scams, shams, wayward plans, all point to a vast desire to be someone in control, important with a good soul a mind and tongue that brings power and riches in gold. Perhaps instead we settle for being bought and sold so that we will feel protected and secure into an age old. Is it not yet time to stand up together as individuals in the name of all you cherish from your history of knowing what is Good, kind, ethical, strong, loving, beautiful, and true? Is this not about living here and now for peace and justice with a thoughtful approach and inspired gait instead of cynicism, fear, and hate? Ideals compared and contrasted with what seems so real, the pragmatic, coupled with the enigmatic challenges of our time, all time. Like a duality, vast speaking volumes of the past in the framework of yours and mine. To transcend, maybe we can, with the sound of the next mindful big bell chime. And today, tonight, is to sense deeply and light the sun, the moon, the earth, and stars bright as one. I saw it written and I saw it say Bingo Moon is on his way None of you stand so tall Bingo Moon and I get you all And so Bingo Moon 
and so we say Bring the moon is on this way None of you stand so tall Bring the moon when I get you Seamus McGraw, is that you? It's me. Let me uh, share with the folks uh, a little bit of uh, background information. Uh, Seamus sure. she- McGraw is a regular contributor, really. He, he comes on every, uh, I guess, year at least. Uh, he's an American journalist and the author of several books, including the critically acclaimed The End of Country, Dispatches from the Frack Zone, Betting the Farm on a Drought, Stories from the Front Lines of Climate Change, and his most recent book, A Thirsty Land. Seamus has been a regular contributor to many publications, including the New York Times, Huffington Post, Playboy, Popular Mechanics, Reader's Digest, The Forward, Spin, Stuff, and Radar, and has appeared on Fox Latino. He has received the Freedom of Information Award from the Associated Press Managing Editors, the Golden Quill Award, as well as honors from the Casey Foundation and the Society of Professional Journalists. A father of four, he lives in the woods of northeastern Pennsylvania with his wife, Karen, his children, and a neighborly bear with boundary issues named Fartles. We are happy once again to have on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, Seamus McGraw. So... Since the last time we've spoke, Seamus, a lot of stuff has gone down. Oh, uh, really? I had hardly noticed. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you, you, uh, you're you on top of it. <laughs> it's probably great uh, in some ways for you. It gives you a, a lot of fodder. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, it's, it, it's great for a writer. I'm not sure it's, it's, it's all that good for just being a regular American, but, you know, in my line of work, yeah, absolutely. Crisis is, uh, crisis is what, uh, what pays the rent. Right, exactly. And uh, we, right now, I mean, we might be facing a constitutional crisis uh, as we speak. Uh, we, you know, the election seemingly is, is over. You know, things have to be certified uh, in December, the Electoral College vote. But we have a guy in office who doesn't seem, and a lot of enablers uh, who doesn't—they don't seem to want to face the facts. What do you? Are you concerned? I'm concerned. I'm not alarmed. And what I mean by that is this. Hang on, just a second. What I mean by that is this. Um, first of all, I have kind of a contrarian view uh, about the election, which is probably hardly a surprise. <laughs> and it's this. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the fact that uh, despite a resounding victory in the popular vote and a uh, commanding lead in the Electoral College, um, that the, res- the reluctance of uh, Trump and his enablers um, to graciously surrender power is moving us towards a crisis, and more 
alarming than that is the idea that though the Biden-Harris ticket netted some 75 million votes, um, Trump and uh, to a lesser degree, perhaps Trumpism, netted 71 million more than they netted in the 2016 election, and that that's a cause for alarm and concern. And it is certainly concerning. But I take this point of view for five years now, literally for five years now since he uh, glided down that golden escalator and began appealing to our worst instincts. There has been a relentless, non-stop marketing campaign. The devil in the wilderness whispering in Jesus' ear, okay, for five years, appealing to our basest instincts, appealing to our worst impulses, appealing to, appealing to our sense of, um, our sense of, of, of grievance, our sense of victimhood, our sense of selfishness, our sense of xenophobia, our sense of racism, appealing to the worst instincts in us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, non-stop. That the majority of Americans never succumbed to that temptation is to me a real testament to who we are. That we are better than we've been cast as being these last several years. Now among that 71 million who voted for um, Donald Trump in this election, there is some subset of that group that has been with us always. They are the same people that uh, fomented the Whiskey Rebellion. They are the same people that slaughtered the Susquehannock Indians in, uh, in Paxton in the 18th century mm -hmm. and then marched on Philadelphia. They're the same people who led us into the Civil War. They're the same people who started riding um, with burning crosses again in the early part of the 20th century and rode through some of these very hills. They're the same people who've been with us always, but that's a min minority of them. Yeah. The majority of the people out there are somewhere in the middle. Susceptible. The temptation, okay, but not, I don't believe, beyond reclamation. So they're not... And so this nonsense that's going on right now with, you know, this, this, this pathological narcissist who literally does represent, embody, I think, the worst of who we have ever been... Um, that he's resisting is is just it, it just shows how futile and and impotent his efforts are. This we, we will move through this. We will move through this. Um, this time, however, I think we need to do something different. D.W. What What do we need to do? And sure. what I what I mean is that in the past, 
this particular, that one-third that he represents, okay, that he embodies, okay, that one-third, we have confronted them regularly throughout our history. We have confronted them regularly without our, uh, throughout our history. And every time we've done, we've done that, um, we've driven them back. We've defeated them. Because the moral arc of, of the universe does bend toward justice. Because it's in our interest. The thing is, is that after every one of these occasions, we've let these guys slip back um, under the rocks from which they slithered. Okay, We've turned around, and in the interest of national healing, we've said, you know what, let's let bygones be bygones. I don't think we can do that this time. And I think one of the benefits that's coming out of the confrontation that this, this, this feudal, impotent temper tantrum that he's throwing right now, is it's going to make us easier, for, it's going to make it easier for us to do that. Because he refuses to slip away gracefully. And because those um, enablers who support him are insisting for the moment that they won't slip back into the shadows gracefully, fine. This is our opportunity to confront them. And this is our opportunity to turn around and change the narrative once and for all. And this is the time to turn around and, quite frankly, make racists afraid to be racists again. And, quite frankly, make bigots afraid to, to, to state their bigotry as openly as they have. This is a time for confrontation. I, I know that, that, that the president-elect um, is saying this is a time for healing. My argument is not yet. Not yet. How, how do we do it, it's though? Not a it's not time. Well, I think one of the ways that you do it is simply to plow through. Okay. The reality is, for all of this, you know, for all of this petulant temper tantrum that he's throwing, on January 20th, we are going to have a new president of the United States. And that president of the United States is going to have only one mandate. We are, we were a very diverse and... Um, I think, um, in, in many ways, um, incompatible uh, coalition. The Democrats. That brought Biden and uh, Harris um, into office. Not all of our agendas are identical, but there is one, I think, agenda that we are all agreed on. I think there is one thing he has as a mandate, and that is to be anything but Trump. And so in that, I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to demand a public accounting. Just yesterday, just yesterday, it, it, uh, the, uh, the ACLU and the lawyers that have been working on this um, said that that 500 and some odd children who had been ripped from their, uh, their parents' arms, literally, Okay, yeah, at awful. the border. Awful. Was now 666. The irony of it being 666, <laughs> I think, is stunning. It is. Um, but there is within that actual crimes that have been committed. There have been, over the course of the past four years, a myriad 
of crimes alleged against this administration with pretty compelling evidence presented. Financial crimes, uh, crimes, you know, we did not lose the argument on whether or not this guy solicited and benefited um, from uh, the uh, the predations of, of foreign governments. Um, we certainly, I think it was certainly proved um, that he did attempt, attempt to extort another country um, into uh, into uh, into supporting him politically the, by the, turning the around. Ukraine. I, well, Ukraine, exactly. Okay. I think what we need to do in order to turn around and create a public narrative is emphatically and relentlessly pursue every one of those crimes and have these things aired publicly. Because you know what, E.W., we are the stories we tell ourselves. That's who we are. We are our narrative. And our narratives are cast in, very often, very often, our narratives are, are cast in the storytelling of court. And I think that's what needs to happen now. I think there needs to be a relentless, a relentless pursuit of, uh, literally, I'm, I'm, I'm calling for a, a, what, what amounts to a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, like was done um, in South Africa. With the, exactly, yeah. exactly. Because we have only now narrowly dodged a bullet. And the, 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 the circumstances that gave rise to this seditious assault on every institution in America over the last um, four years, the circumstances that gave rise to that, unless we turn around and address this head-on, we are going to, at some point, face that same one-third coalescing around another demagogue, but a demagogue who is smarter and more skillful, shrewder, and better positioned to do permanent and irrevocable damage I know to it's, this country. It's amazing because I think you're saying, and I agree wholeheartedly with you, that it's, a, it's, it's really sort of depressing that so many of our fellow citizens, 71 million, would be suckered in by a, a buffoon like Donald Trump. So if you get somebody in there that's just a little bit less of a buffoon, or even you know a great politician, wow! Mm -hmm. We could, I mean, right. we could, we could really be looking at some major absolutely, upheaval. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and but the the thing is, is do not lose sight, E.W. The fact that do not lose sight of the fact that seventy five million Americans, no matter uh, un, under incredible duress, to buy into this nonsense, right. Yeah, literally a a, a five year long infomercial of of just depravity. I am impressed. It would have frankly been easier to accept 
would have been easier to accept that 75 million Americans were never vulnerable at all. No. And, and, you know, and, 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 you know, I want to throw one other thing out. The idea that, that it is true that in some places um, Trump and Trumpism enlarged their margin at the polls. We did, too. Okay. Uh, people of dignity, grace, and um, decency. I would argue that I haven't seen any proof so far that there are more of them or that there are more of us. Just that in this particular incident, more of them and more of us went to the polls. They've been out there. Okay, it's just that this time they voted. Right, right. Uh, I I'm I am sort of inspired by the fact that we beat him. Uh, I was hoping for a landslide, and uh, you know I guess it does reveal in in stark relief uh, who we are, and and you know we do have to address that. You're right, truth and reconciliation. Are you that different personally, E. W. than we are as a nation? Am I? I uh, yeah. I think I I think. Great question. I think I'm. On my best days, 75 million to 71 million good over bad. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> it, this is who we are. Yeah. This is who we are as a nation, and this is who we are as individuals. Right, and our history informs that, you know, that, mm -hmm. that narrative, you know, right. that we are exceptional. You know, right. I, I wanted to get into that. Are, are we exceptional? You know, right now... I think we are. Why do you think, I we, think we are? Why do you think we're exceptional? I think we are exceptional because here we were facing an existential crisis. An existential crisis. This literally was an election about whether or not we would be able to keep Franklin's Republic. This literally, that literally was what was on the table. Okay, and we, as a flawed, wounded, um, venal, selfish, bigoted people, as individuals and as a nation, rose to the challenge. Well, what inspired that? I can point you? to a lot of places where that doesn't happen, E.W. What inspired it? What inspired it, do you think, though? I mean, you know, if we're right that we have all this negative in us, all of us, the 75 million as well, given our history, given... I am a, I am a, I am an unashamed, I, and always have been, I am an unashamed patriot. The values that inform the liberal democracies of the world were forged and despite the constant attack under them were forged in this in this commonwealth ew not just in this country but right here where we're standing pennsylvania <laughs> okay <clears throat> this has always been 
it has we have always been in contention with our darker angels okay we have always been in contention with our darker angels but it began here okay and faced I think the most acute way we have been faced with it in certainly in a generation okay and I think frankly um one of the most egregious um or most most desperate moments of our history of our entire history when it was all on the line that slight edge of our better angels responded. And I find that inspiring. You know, it, it's very easy. It's very easy to turn around in, in, in hindsight. And again, this is another one of the reasons why we have to confront this. Confront what happened. Confront what led to this. Um, in a, a very public way. In a very rigorous way in a judicial way, okay? Because it is very easy after the fact to turn around and recognize, well, obviously, this concept of decency prevailed. No, that's never obvious. It's never obvious in a nation, and it's never obvious in an individual. Decency only ever wins by a few points, in me as a person, and in my country, and in my world. It only ever wins by a few points. And we need to be, we need to, we need to be cognizant of that always. We need to be cognizant of that always. You know, I've got a book coming out in... Um, I guess it's coming out in April. Okay. And it's a book about, um, it, it's called From a Taller Tower, um, The Rise of the American Mass Public Shooter. What was the, t- what was the title about, again? I didn't catch that. It's so. called From a Taller Tower. From a Taller Tower. Right. It basically traces the epidemic of mass public shootings in the United States from the University of Texas Tower on August 1st, 1966. Okay, one of the things that I explore in that is the idea um, that the victimhood, a sense of victimhood, the thirst for fame, the uh, pathological self-obsession that motivates so many of these shooters is, in a way, a deep and darkly distilled version of a kind of rage and victimization and thirst for fame. Thirst for fame. For fame. We're, we're, we're a people who often prize fame above anything else. And we don't draw a distinction between fame and infamy. Okay. The argument that I make is that you can see, you can see all these warning signs among these shooters, and in hindsight, we turn around and we say, "Well, they did this, and they did that, and they did the other." Okay, they said this; they were there. The reality is, 
in the fog of war in peacetime here in this country, they don't really stand out all that much. And yet, the fact that against that backdrop, against that commoditization of rage and victimhood and grievance, against that backdrop, we are still capable of rising above it. The fact that we are still capable of that is to me almost miraculous. And it is the strength. And so when you ask me, okay, what it is that makes us um, exceptional, it is that. We are not the only exceptional people on the face of the earth by any stretch of the imagination. Are the Germans, are the French, are the, are the uh, Chileans, are the Zimbabweans? Among some, it is ethos. Among others, it's simply a choice by an individual. We're one of those places, and we're really the first, I believe. And because of that, we have an obligation. When you say exceptional, why um, a native grace? It doesn't imply a, uh, a, a superiority except in obligation. Because of who we've been, for good and for ill, we have a greater obligation, I think, to face down our own weaknesses, our own perfidiousness, our own vices. I think that is part of our national ethos. I think that is one of the things that makes us a country. So it's not just the idea that we're exceptional, that we're better. Okay, No, that's not what I mean by exceptional. We are under an obligation. We, we have an obligation. To the rest and of the that world? That obligation is first, and it's, it's to our, it is to the rest of the world. Okay, but it is most of all to each other and to ourselves. It is always, always, always a game of inches. It is always a game of inches. And what about that one third? The, the you know, as Hillary Clinton probably would call them, the irredeemable deplorables. Could they ever be changed? Or are they always going to be there? As you said. The- I don't know. I don't know. Nothing that we have done in the past has broken that one-third. Okay? Nothing in the past go away. I, 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 I think of them as sort of a... Uh, uh, sort of a, a, a pathogen in the body politic that every generation or so 
they float around, they go into remission, and then every generation or so they attach themselves to a host. You know, I don't know. This time the host was Trump. The last time the host was George Wallace. Okay. Every every generation or so they we kill the host and then slip back into remission. And this is what I was saying before. We've allowed that to happen. We've allowed that to happen um, because they just became quiet. They just became quiet only among themselves. It's the only time you ever heard anything. It was only among themselves. And then when they felt that they had permission or an opportunity, they begin to turn around. This 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 pathogen back into 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 the system, and we've allowed that to happen. Always in the interest of national healing. Okay, it's time for us to come together and move on. Can't we all be friends? Let's move on. It's it's you know we we've allowed myths to be created. After the Civil War, we created the myth of the 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 great lost cause to turn around and sanitize what was done there. Um, we've done this time and time and time again. This time it's going to be more difficult for them to do that. Because, you know, a generation ago, they hadn't posted every word, every thought, every, 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 every malevolent impulse on Facebook and Twitter. Those things last forever. Those things last forever, E.W., Mm-hmm. It's going to be much more difficult for them to uh, for them to pretend in silence that they were simply innocent bystanders, and we need to continue to hold them accountable for what they've said and what they've done. Excellent. I think that's a good place to to pause this time. Seamus McGraw, American journalist, author, Pennsylvanian. Um, proud Pennsylvanian, E.W., proud Pennsylvanian. I hear you. I hear you, brother. And you have a new book coming out in April. From a Taller Tower. From a the Taller Tower. The Rise of the American Mass Shooter. Excellent. People can find that on Amazon and, and such? Yeah. it's it's In fact, it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. Seamus McGraw, it's wonderful talking with you, sir. I look forward to our next conversation, and we'll we'll see at that point how things have have transpired. Okay. Good talking to you, D.W. Same here. Take care. Bye-bye. Get past the people. Get past the hitmen.
Five stanzas from Buddhist monk Thichnat Han's book titled How to Fight. The first is titled Stillness is the Foundation of Understanding. When we observe or listen to other people, we often don't see them clearly or really hear what they're saying. We see and hear our projections and prejudices instead. We have wrong perceptions about others, which color what we see and hear. Even if a friend gives us a compliment, we find it difficult to receive their kind words. Most of the time, our mind, thoughts, and feelings aren't calm. They're like the water in a muddy lake, which can't reflect the sky because it's been churned up by a storm. If we're not calm, we can't listen deeply and understand. But when our mind is calm, we can see reality more clearly, like still water reflecting the trees, the clouds, and the blue sky. Stillness is the foundation of understanding and insight. 
Stillness is strength. This stanza is called Breathe Before Speaking. When you feel upset or angry, it's important not to do or say anything. We need to calm down first. Don't speak or act with the energy of anger in you. Just come back to your body and your breathing. Breathe in and out mindfully, releasing the tension in your body and mind. Or go for a walk until you are calm enough. Then ask your friend to clarify what they were saying. Check to see if you have understood correctly, if your perceptions were correct. This will prevent a lot of damage to your relationship. This is titled, Tree in a Storm. Many people don't know how to handle their strong emotions. Our wrong perceptions can make us angry or fill us with despair. To see clearly, we must calm down. When we're overcome by strong emotions, we're like a tree in a storm with its top branches and leaves swaying in the wind. But the trunk of the tree is solid, stable, and deeply rooted in the earth. When we're caught in a storm of emotions, we can practice to be like the trunk of the tree. We don't stay up in the high branches. We go down to the trunk and become still, not carried away by our thinking and emotions. We don't say or do anything. We just focus all our attention on the rise and fall of our abdomen, our trunk. This protects us from speaking in anger and saying something we may regret. This is titled, Acting Out. Some people believe that suffering, anger, and despair are poisons and you have to get them out of your system but they may be useful and can be transformed into something positive right there where they are. When you try to get anger out by hitting something like a pillow, it may seem harmless, but it's not certain that you can release your anger by hitting the pillow, imagining it to be your enemy, the one who has made you suffer. You may be rehearsing your anger and making it stronger instead of releasing it. It may seem safe to hit a pillow, because it's not a person or an animal. But doing this will water the seed of anger in your unconscious mind. By rehearsing our anger, we are creating a habit of being angry, which can be dangerous and destructive. And this is titled, Feeding Our Suffering. The Buddha said, Nothing can survive without food not even love. Without nourishment, your love will die. You can learn ways to nourish your love every day so that your love can continue to thrive. What kind of food are you feeding your love? When you produce loving thoughts, speech, and actions, these nourish your love and help it grow strong. Suffering also requires food to survive. If you continue to suffer, it's because you feed your suffering every day. Thoughts, conversations, films, books, magazines, and the internet are sensory foods that we consume. If we don't carefully choose what we consume, these things can water the seeds of anger, 
fear, violence, and discrimination within us. If you stop feeding your suffering, it would also die. Searching for balance, praying for clarity. March strip me naked, take this identity, tell me it's unity. In Lakesha, Lakin, I am you, you are me. Searching for balance, praying for clarity. March strip me naked, take this identity, tell me it's unity. In Lakesha, Lakin, I am you, you are me. We're close, I like to hide So no one knows what I made from Deep in my soul Taken from home so far we strode Deep in these roads Think we control this shit we don't But fuck we could I wish we would throw away these phones Get a bit more holy See the world more slowly Take us more roses Searching for balance Praying for clarity Mars strip me naked Take this identity Tell me it's unity In Lakesha, Lakin I am you, you are me Searching for balance Praying for clarity Mars strip me naked Take this identity Tell me it's unity In Lakesha, Lakin I am you, you are me See all I know Is that I know Nothing at all, this shit is so mystical, magical And no, we don't know our potential How could we, when they lie, they cast spells and they thrive Dropping bombs from the skies like we are not stars Inside me there's a war Basketballs and an orange pumpkin glazed wet with morning mist down the front stoop into the front yard of grass 
wet too on my open-toed sandals. My feet feel the early day dew drop slow and true from nature's clouds of heaven. Above them a glorious shade and texture blue.
And there you have it, episode 395 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Seamus McGraw, Thishnat Han, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Tim Baker, Nick Drake, James Brown, Green T. Peng, Fat Boy Slim, and of course, Branford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard too. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this time. Take care.